0: Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Good
1: morning, church. You know, I hope, uh, I hope, you know, this morning the gathering is an extension of your personal time with the Lord. And I woke up nice and early and we're spending time with Him in, in worship and prayer and the Word. And, and uh, I was reflecting on just how easy it is to take for granted what we're doing here today. Uh, When you think of, you know, the 360 million believers around the world that are being persecuted to varying levels and degrees, and the cost that that they will pay and what they'll go through just in order to meet together, to get into the Word together, to learn, to pray, to worship, and here we get to come in here, and a few times you know, you stop singing only for short moments, because it's so wonderful to shout praise to the Lord, and you hear just a room full of brothers and sisters that are all glorifying the name of God together, and there is something so incredibly beautiful, it's a gift. It's like all the problems in your life cease for just that moment, amen? And it's amazing what turning your eyes on jesus can do Uh, but before i call the uh, yuans up um, i do have some sad news uh, to share with you this past week helen cron went to be with her lord and savior jesus christ and although her tears and her pain are are over forevermore she gets to be with her savior jesus the one she loved Uh, her family is left with an irreplaceable spot in their hearts. that You can't replace a mom, you can't replace a best friend, you can't replace a grandma, you can't replace a wife. And so we wanna pray for Dan and their kids, Dave and Renita, uh, who are part of our church, and they have three kids as well, Emma, Tiana, and Rebecca. And so we're going to pray for them together uh, because they're our families. And again, I would encourage, if you can, to write those names down. If, you're not, if you know them, then you already know them. Write them on your fridge. That's a good way. Sticky notes. I know people who do that. Sticky notes. I do it in the side of my journal, The Margins. And uh, continue praying for them because they're going to need our support. The funeral was already this last week, uh, but they're going to need prayer support as they go forward. Amen? All right, just as a sign of uh, being in solidarity with our Brothers and sisters, if you want to just hold up your hands like this, I will pray for them. Lord Jesus, today we thank you that Helen's pain is no more. Lord, we don't understand it always, and we don't understand the, the pain that's left behind, but we also know that, that you know this loss. You feel loss. And so, Lord, today we're lifting up Dan to you, and Dave and Renita, Lord, we're asking that you would comfort them in the way that only you can. You are the perfect high priest. You've experienced everything we have. So Lord, would you comfort them today? Would you give them peace? Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to Emma and Tiana and Rebecca, that they would know your goodness in all of us, that they would see your goodness even in death, even in goodbyes, that they would know your your goodness, your peace, your shalom. And then, Lord, we ask that the God of hope that you would fill them with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your grace inside of them, that their lives may abound in hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today we have a special guest speaker. Uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan and his mom, uh, Mrs. Angela Yuan, and they're going to be sharing their story with us, and I'm very excited uh, for that. I've been looking forward to it. We heard snippets of it yesterday, so Dr. Yuan was already speaking in a conference here yesterday, and that was really, really good. By the way, uh, his topic on holy sexuality is so incredibly necessary for the church today. And the the beautiful way in which he redeemed and balanced singleness and marriage was wonderful. I love the chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. He challenged us to live with holy sexuality and to love those who are different than us, with different struggles, but also to stand firm on truth. It was absolutely amazing. And now I'm looking forward to hearing their story this morning. Uh, So you know a little bit about Dr. Yuan. Um, He'll share his story, but he graduated from the Moody Bible Institute in 2005 received a master's in biblical exegesis in 2007, and his doctorate in ministry at 2014. So he was a teacher for 12 years, Uh, he's he's an author, Uh, he's accomplished that way, he's a minister for the Lord, uh, but mostly he is a man who has been redeemed through faith in Christ Jesus. So would you give Dr. Yuan and Mrs. Angela Yuan a warm welcome as they come up and share with us this morning.
2: That's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown down apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after. October 31st, when little people were in custom, wear masks, and ring doorbells and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? (laughs) Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I also assumed Just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. (laughs) We were not Christian then. After years of unresolved marriage problems and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, We began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there is nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy but my wife responds quite differently.
3: You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, If you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister, who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak track ticket to Louisville where well, I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes to my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I caught the number from the back of the pamphlet. It was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me.
2: After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very happy. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on she has God on her side. <laughs> but I realized that her transformation was not an, only a Sunday-only change, but a fact that every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God also worked on me. So I started to go to church with her and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. It was well studied the Word in my church and in BSF I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God,
0: for my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different. I dif- acted different. And I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret. I came out of the closet, I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story. But I also want to remind you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs like my classmates. I was a student, I was broke. So I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was receiving my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So My parents flew from Chicago, where we were from, to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad was a dentist. He knew the dean really well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents would do anyway? (laughs) To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it is not important that." Christopher becomes a dentist, what's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus, even more important than education, even more important than career. But the sad reality is many people may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their pension plan. And in essence, we are forcing our kids to do the same. Think about this. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their kids getting the homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis upon our kids following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But honestly, I was not happy about my mom's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all, money, fame, drugs and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator because in my world, I had become God.
3: Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But Little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash.
2: My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allowed us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. <clears throat> Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son, Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer, Lord, Do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you." In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years, once fasted 39 days for our son, Christopher. She would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers.
3: I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray, And, Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I would never give up on that Son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed. We will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace as God drew us to Himself each and every day.
0: Often, after the prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception but my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with their prayers. She knew that it was gonna take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they compensated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with this equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia. and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the latter City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more to trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home watch out. And she knew that as long as I have those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers out there, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But mom's first words were, SON, ARE YOU OKAY?" NO CONDEMNATION, NO BERATING WORDS, JUST WORDS OF UNCONDITIONAL LOVE AND GRACE. THE APOSTLE PAUL SAYS IN ROMANS CHAPTER 2 VERSE 4 THAT IT'S GOD'S KINDNESS THAT LEADS US TO REPENTANCE. NOTICE HOW PAUL didn't say that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was Excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. (laughs) Because I had not called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, No matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. Next to the phone was a calculator. She tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place (laughs) compared to before. (laughs) And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I passed, and I was doing everything that I could to stay to myself. Think about it, I mean, I was not gonna mingle with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) (laughs) And I passed by this garbage can. And I looked at this trash and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad had two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving My own doctorate, I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and i better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things could going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. They chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read, H. IV positive
3: A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV-positive. His solemn and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I have lived this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees. A stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet streams of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul
4: when peace like but
3: with us.
0: A FEW DAYS AFTER, RECEIVING THAT DEVASTATING NEWS, I WAS IN MY PRISON CELL ALL BY MYSELF, JUST CONTEMPLATING THE MESS THAT I'VE MADE OF MY LIFE. I LIE THERE AND I LOOK UP AT THE COLD METAL BUNK ABOVE ME. THERE WAS GRAFFITI, PROFANITY, GANG SYMBOLS. BUT SOMEBODY HAD WRITTEN SOMETHING ELSE IN THE CORNER. And it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could even still have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, He delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing in other idols, and there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn this core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I thought I need to ask someone His opinion, who's someone who's studied the Bible, who's gone to seminary, the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even went to his shelf and he said, Here, this book explains that view. So, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and His Word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence, any verse, that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God in His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, By allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true, but then as sinners, we sometimes just want to add to God's truth. I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. Before I become a Christian, I was under the impression to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I was under the impression the more sexually attracted I were, the lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite-sex attractions, he still would need to flee temptation and resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality, it might be the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Because think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, that is not the goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity, because change is not the absence of temptations. Jesus doesn't say, come to me, you'll never be tempted again. Jesus himself was tempted in every way, but is without sin. So change, is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places, and I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me into ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore open again, filling it out until I realized I needed references, not from anybody. These had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. (laughs) But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, I was accepted. I was released from prison July of 2001, started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the immense privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she, she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, but, and this book now is in eight different languages, 130,000 copies in print, and there's a study guide at the back, and we found out that Small groups are using this, parents are using this with their kids, but Christian schools here in Canada and in the United States are using this book, this, our testimony, as a textbook. Think about that. Our testimony is now a textbook. But it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded today with resources on sexuality and gender contrary to to God's Word. And regrettably, we often stand by and do little or nothing. Or we think, oh, that's too early. You know, the right question today is not to ask, when is it too early? Parents and little ones, listen up. The right question today is not, when is it too early? The question is, When is it too late? If they're beginning in pre-K picture books, you'd be surprised how I would say the majority of kids' books today have an LGBTQ character in it and you don't even know it. IF THEY'RE BEGINNING IN PRE-K, WHAT MAKES US THINK WE COULD WAIT TILL THEY'RE TEN? I USED TO THINK SIX TO EIGHT WAS A GOOD AGE TO START. NOW, ESPECIALLY IN CANADA, IT'S THREE TO FIVE. IF WE'RE NOT THE FIRST PERSON TO TALK TO OUR KIDS ABOUT SEX AND ABOUT GENDER, AND THE WORLD IS, JUST IMAGINE ALL damage control you're going to have to do for the years, years, that the teachers have already put them in. So we have to be proactive. You know, I'm I'm very, very convinced that the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of public schools. Three of you heard me. Let me say that again. The job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of public schools. Amen? Amen. The job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of social media or TikTok. You know who holds the main responsibility to do that? parents. Parents. But parents... Y'all need a lot of help. It's not just parents. You know who else? Grandparents. Are there any grandparents in this room this morning? Let's see those hands. I'm adding you to list because you have too much time on your hands. <laughs> Actually, think back when you were younger. How much did you listen to your parents at that age or your peers? Maybe right now, grandpa, you actually have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using it, or are we wasting it? Are we using it to actually throw a lifeline to our kids that are drowning in a tsunami of lies? I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma, and after we finished this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table, and she said, I need 10 books. And I'm like, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10, one for myself, nine for every one of my grandchildren. She said, I ain't taking no chances. I'm going to mail every one of the book tomorrow, I'm going to read it with them, and then I'm going to use that discussion guide and study it with them. Discuss it with them, a grandmother taking seriously the God-given responsibility you all have as parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents to no longer shrug it off to the world because the world is going to do it gladly. But it's time we take it back. Anyone want to take it back? Let's see those hands. It's time we take it back. And I know a lot of you are thinking, I don't know where to start. Many of you are embarrassed or scared or just anxious our kids probably know m- much more about their vocabulary today than we do. What do, I, what do you do? What do I say? How do, and Because sometimes our message to our kids is this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Important messages to say and teach. But we can't stop there. Because we can't build a Christian life just on God's no. What is God's Yes. Well, that's why I wrote my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships, Shaped by God's Grand Story. It was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. And essentially, it's helping us to see not just God's no, but what is God's yes, which is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. But in the years that this book has come out, I realized I wrote this for adults, young adults, for parents, grandparents, etc. But, man, we need something specifically geared for teens, even younger. So I've, in the past three years, been creating this video curriculum. Initially, I was going to call it the Holy Sexuality Teen Curriculum. But I realized that's going to scare kids away with that word curriculum. So we're dropping the word curriculum, and we're just calling it the Holy Sexuality Project. It's going to be a video series for parents and their teens. You see, there's some resources out there on sexuality, a few, but most of them are for youth groups. Not necessarily a bad thing, but the youth leaders do not replace parents. Can I get an amen for that? As, as, as much good as the youth leaders and youth pastor is doing, the youth pastor can never replace the parent. The youth pastor is going to disciple your kids, but they should not be the primary disciplers. Who should be the primary disciplers? Parents. And I'll add grandparents. So all these resources are for youth groups. So that's not actually equipping parents to do the God-ordained job that God has deigned you to do. So this curriculum, or I'm sorry, I'm slipping into that, this video series is actually geared specifically for the home for parents and their teens to go through it themselves because that will set the teens up for later in life for life and also set up for in-home conversations that's going to last more beyond this video series. It's 12 lessons, 36 videos, 250 minutes of content. Each lesson is going to be about 45 minutes of video and discussion. And there's going to be great animation as well involved in this. We have got a team of 32 animators, illustrators, sound engineers, many of them that actually created and produced videos for the Bible Project, if you're familiar with that. So if you, you, know, you could get out your phones right now and scan this QR code, you know, don't be shy, and put in your name and your email address here because it's going to be releasing actually in a few more weeks, probably maybe about a month, and we're gonna be getting out information to you there. This video series normally costs probably around $200, $300. We're actually, we have a lot of donors that have already paid for this whole project, and we're just gonna be charging about 20. It's gonna be very, very reasonable, and even all those fundings that's gonna come in is gonna go 100% toward our next project, which is not for parents and their teens, but it's gonna be parents and their kids for grade school kids. Anyone have grade school kids that you know and love? So we, we, we're hoping in the next few years of creating one for grade school kids. So we would love for you to put your name and email address here, because silence is no longer an option. God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, for the past two decades, have been traveling around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor, because he brought me back to Moody, where for 12 years I taught in the Bible to department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. I know for many of you, you might not have ever heard a story like mine before, a guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. That is a very important part of my testimony. But that's actually not how I would best summarize it. This is how I'd summarize my testimony. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. You all have probably noticed that we have an empty chair here. Eight months ago, my dear father went home to be with the Lord. It was very, very sudden. He was 82 years old, very active. He traveled with me. I, 40 to 50 times a year, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, ministering more than men half his age. When I'm 82, I want to be like that. June 30th, we had just returned from San Francisco. They let us in and out. <laughs> Almost didn't get in here. we just come home from ministering in San Francisco, and July 1st, my mom and dad were running errands, and my dad fell in the parking lot, hit his head really hard on the pavement, bad concussion, and they couldn't stop the internal bleeding. And within 12 hours, my dad was in a coma. When I got to the urgent care, or the emergency room, The doctor was already like, oh, it's really, really bad. There's no hope. And I told the doctor, Mom and I believe in hope. And we believe in miracles. Anyone in here believe in miracles? So we prayed for 48 hours for a miracle. And the miracle came when my dad was fully healed before his Savior. As my mom and I were sitting behind his, be beside his bed, before the shell of his body, my mom looked at me and said, we are going to tell everyone that Dr. Leon Yuan is not dead. He is now more alive today than he ever was before. my dad would want every one of you in this room to know Jesus. So the question this morning is, do you? Do you know going to church does not save you? Having a godly spouse Godly parents that drag you to church every single Sunday does not save you. But believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will have eternal life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, today's the day. What are you waiting for? There are pastors and staff and greeters that got the name tags that would love to talk to you more about this Jesus that has saved us and has saved you. So talk to someone this day. Let's, let's, let's pray. With our heads bowed, and, and if, if that is you, if, if God is, is speaking to you this morning, and saying, what are you waiting on? I just want you to say this prayer. And I want to be very, very clear. This prayer does not save you. Jesus does. But it's a beginning of this confession and this conversation with God. And just pray this prayer. Lord, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. But Jesus came who died for me while I was still a sinner, while I was an enemy. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross willingly, took upon the sins of the world, and he died. And then, God, you rose him from the grave. And I know that by grace through faith in Christ will I too rise with him. Thank you, God. Help me to live the rest of my days for you. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would help us to live with a sense of urgency. Lord, our days are numbered. And while you tarry, help us to love you more than life. For it is in the matchless, precious, powerful name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said,